0: Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Congressman Adam Smith from the 9th Congressional District in Washington State. And we'll be talking about his new memoir, Lost and Broken, My Journey Back from Chronic Pain and Crippling Anxiety. Congressman Smith offers a candid memoir about his years-long struggle with anxiety and chronic pain and the winding path to find the right diagnosis and treatment. He discovered the severe limitations of our nation's health care system and brought him face-to-face with the cost of the stigma our country has against admitting to and dealing with mental health issues. He learned that life isn't about finding that quick fix or clear-cut mental and physical program to stop worrying and struggling. It's about learning who you are, understanding your body and mind well enough to face those struggles that we all will inevitably face, and then being able to enjoy your life even when those struggles come. Congressman Smith ran in and won his first congressional race, T 96, and has been reelected 11 times. From 2019 to 2013, he chaired the House Armed Services Committee. He's also a member of the New Democratic Coalition and the Congressional Progressive Caucus. For more information, you can visit his government webpage at adamsmith.house.gov. And with that, I'd like to welcome Adam to the show. Good day, Adam.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate the chance.
0: It's my pleasure. And, and um, as I was going through and reading your book, there were so many experiences that, and stories that you had in your book that I know that affect so many, um, so many people that I'm sure they will take, um, take notice of, of what your struggle was and, and see that in theirs. Um, now, I'm, this is a memoir, So, I'm, and I've had many a folk on, on the show who have written memoirs, and I'm always amazed you know, at the courage that it takes to put out there, you know, one's life, you know, with all of its challenges, um, you know, for people to see. So did you have any reservations at all about putting your story out there?
1: I mean, not, not not really. I mean, when I originally wrote this, it was more or less sort of for me. While it was fresh in my mind to understand what I had gone through, I was you know really starting to get better by the middle of 2019, and then I started writing the book in early 2020. So the purpose of it originally was for me to you know think through all the stuff and hopefully you know as, as I wouldn't say the final step. This is an ongoing life process, but it's one important step in understanding, okay, you know, what, what do I do mentally and physically now to make sure I'm taking care of myself? But as I wrote it, I realized a lot of people are going through this, um, and I felt it could be helpful to add to that conversation, um, to hopefully find a way that could help people struggling with anxiety, depression, or chronic pain, I guess i've always you know i'm a public figure I've always been reasonably open about what's going on with me so i didn't I didn't have a huge reservation about that, I felt like it was you know an honest story that needs to be told
0: well good well and and i'm I'm glad you did because you know the The fact that you, you know, in the book you talk about, you know, kind of
2: having major,
0: having successes along the way, and then having setbacks, and then, you know, and then trying all different types of alternatives um, is, I think, a a journey that that a lot of people do. Um, Now, in your book, I I mentioned, you know, that it's um, you chronicle your your battle with chronic pain and anxiety. So, can you tell us um, a little bit you know, about each, you know, kind of what, what? how did the chronic pain and, and
1: then being, the how did they manifest in your life? Sure. Well, the way I do the, I sort of start in the middle, you know, sort of where the problems are at their worst and then go back and walk through, you know, how in my life I got to that point and then how how I got out of it. Look, looked my, my whole life, um, you know, I've had, you know, I've been a high-stress person. Um, I worry a lot. Um, and, you know, I've had, you know, that sort of high stress level. But it didn't really cross over into a severe problem except for a couple of times in my life. And that's one of the key points. The the difference between stress and anxiety or, you know, feeling down and depression is really fairly profound. I mean, one can obviously lead to the other. Uh, But for me, I had this incredible attack of depression when I was 25 years old, It only lasted for three or four months, and I didn't do anything about it, and it just sort of went away. And then when I was 40 years old, so in 2005, I had uncontrollable attack of anxiety. You know, I I saw a psychiatrist. I took some anti-anxiety meds. But, again, four or five months, it just sort of went away without me really understanding what had happened. But then in 2013, so I would have been 48 at that time, the anxiety came back and wouldn't go away. And that's when I went through a whole series of psychiatrists and psychologists, a whole bunch of different medications trying to get it under control. And it's just, you know, what I want people to understand is there's high stress and then there's an anxiety that will not leave. And basically the anxiety is a constant feeling of existential fear. that won't go away day in and day out. And it's not necessarily tied to any specific thing. I mean, you have stress in your life, not like something specific happens. It's just sort of like a trigger in your brain that has a deeper meaning that a surface understanding will tell you. And that's what I was trying to get at. Physically, I had well, I had knee surgery when I was 16 years old. Um, I've also – well, I've never been terribly flexible. I've had impinged hips. So – and I did not rehab my knee. So over the course of 30 years, my body got really out of whack as one side got stronger than the other. Then my hips went bad. So I've had pain, knee pain since I was a teenager, back pain since my late 20s, you know, foot pain, a whole bunch of different things. But again, that, too, didn't get to the, you know, completely uncontrollable point until about a year after my anxiety hit, um, the point where you're walking, standing, doing anything was painful. And similarly, I had to go through a whole bunch of doctors of one kind or another trying to figure out what was wrong and how to fix it. So it was really just... A culmination of, you know, 30, 35 years of different things that finally broke over to the point where it was no longer manageable. The anxiety in 2013, the chronic pain in 2014, and of course the two combined it just really put me in a very bad place. And in my book starts in 2016 after my third hip surgery, uh, total replacement of my left hip. And I wasn't getting better. The anxiety wasn't going away. And I was taking oxycodone, um, amitriptyline, clonazepam, a whole bunch of different drugs that, that, you know, it could help a little bit, but at the same time weren't making me better. And I sort of had to fight my way out of it from there.
0: Yeah, yeah. Excuse me. One of the things that I understand that you want to address and, and hopefully um, get through to people is, is uh, you know the idea of a stigma, the stigma around mental illness. And in one point in your book, you, you say, "I vividly remember thinking as the pain got worse. Well, at least now I have something socially acceptable wrong with me, and I don't have to completely why, lie about why I'm not feeling up to yes. for a particular event, that." So, can you tell us a little bit of kind of what what your perspective is of of that stigma you know that that we have and, and are we making progress in to your to your mind about um in at least
1: sure. minimizing
0: the not eliminating
1: we're making a little bit of progress, but look, the initial challenge here was you know first of all, before the first stigma that was in the I had about mental illness from the very start was. I thought of mental illness as this very bright line. Basically, either you're normal or you're crazy. And early on in my life, I decided that I was normal, so I didn't have to worry about mental illness. And, of course, that's not the way it works. You know, you can have mental health challenges come at you from a variety of different angles. But to me, I didn't even think about, you know, preventative steps on mental health. And if I was stressed or anxious or whatever, I just assumed it was something that would go away. First of all, we don't do a good job of telling people, okay, you should pay attention to your mental health. Keep an eye on it. In the same way, on the physical side, I mean, they tell you, you need to get a physical Um, at a variety of different points in your life. One year, my children just went off to college, you know, not long ago, and they had to have a physical that you never do sort of a mental health wellness thing. So there's this initial bias that mental health is not something that requires the same attention as physical health. And then the second part of it was when I started having my anxiety, particularly in 2005, the first time, both times actually. I can't let people know I have to hide this. People found out that I was now on the other side of that line, and was crazy, well, I mean, who's going to want someone to be their member of Congress who's not in their right mind? And that was a very strong perception of mine, whereas as I contrast in the book, when my hips started hurting, you know, I didn't have any problem telling people about it. You know, physical problems are okay to talk about. So that stigma prevents people from getting access to care. Now, I will say, just in the last three or four years, I think we've done a much better job of speaking publicly about mental health. There have been a lot of high-profile people, obviously, Senator Fetterman, um, a variety of different athletes. Uh, Simone Biles went through some of this, Michael Phelps, others who have begun to speak more openly about it. I think the final step, the third thing that I still worry about, is telling people that you have mental health problems and there is a path to getting better. I think too much of the focus on mental health now is just sort of, you know, looking at people who are struggling with it as, oh, my gosh, look at that. You know, it's it's almost voyeuristic, like, you know, looking Mm -hmm. at, you know, someone who's really, really struggling as opposed to, and here's what you can do about it. I mean, when you, you know, if you break your leg skiing or if you start having pain in your knee, it's like, okay, here's what you do to get better. I want more of the conversation now to be about mental health problems, yes, are common. They should not be stigmatized, but also – You can get better. I think a lot of times, and that was, again, part of my perception of this when I first found out I had a mental health issue. My perception was, well, okay, what do you do about it? What's a psychiatrist going to say to me that's going to make me better? You know, you hear about people going to therapy for 30 years, and they're not any better after 30 years than when they started. That was my perception, anyway, of mental health, was it's just like, you know, once you have a mental health problem, yeah well, I guess that's just you know something you got to live with, it. and that is so not the case. There are clear treatments and clear ways of looking at it that can help people get better. get some progress, but there's still a long way to go
0: yeah, yeah, I agree
1: um now
0: in one part of your book is that you have know, mentioned uh, there you know that you met with in, with a lot of activists you know in the mental health industry and during um, after one particular meeting an activist asked you if, if you had any personal experience with mental illness and you immediately responded no. And I I'm wondering the you know, when it comes to you no. know, the individual recognizing or not, you know, their struggle, but also with people, you know, around them, you know, their their family members or friends or coworkers, you know, that is, is that um, kind of immediate disassociation, you know, kind of with someone who might have, uh, have a, a mental health issue, is that something also that we need to work toward
1: um, eliminating? Yes, no, absolutely. In fact, even as you asked that question, you know, something's occurring to me that hadn't occurred to me before. I and mean, the question that the activist asked me was, had I or anyone close to me had a mental health issue? Um, and again, at that time, this was probably twenty years ago now, I just was like of course not. What are you talking about? No, I'm real fine. You know. Now looking back on it, when I went in and did, you know, three and a half years worth of psychotherapy to sort of figure out you know, what had gone on in my life, you know, my mother was, you know, chronically depressed. And I later found out that she had been suicidal in her twenties before before I was born. These are my adopted I was, I was adopted, which is part part of the story. He and my father, you know, had, had anxiety for much of his life when I look back on this, but it never, never really occurred to me at the time. So I think there's a tendency to not want to see these things. And, again, I will say that a lot of the public conversations that people are now having about anxiety and depression, I think that's helping. I think people are more comfortable in saying, you know, Gosh, you know, what's, if it's a family member or a close friend, you can see something going on with them. You can ask about it and see what you can do to be be helpful. Again, you know, if you're if a friend or a family member, you know, showed up the limping or you know in a cast, you would automatically say, "Gosh, what's wrong? How can I help you?" Whereas on the mental health side, the tendency is to not see it. I think that's changing. I think that's getting better. But yeah, no, I think you're you're, you're quite correct that there is. Yeah, uh, you know, that stigma also makes us unlikely, less likely, I should say, to see problems in people close to us and around us.
0: Yeah, and, and as more people, like you indicated, more high-profile people talk about their story,
2: um, I think it
0: just raises awareness in, in others who just may not know, may not have known what to look for, you know, in, in someone who is struggling.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: So um, you mentioned psychotherapy, and and I had to laugh. There was one point, you know, anybody talks psychotherapy works, and but that you said I resisted this at first. I mean, psychotherapy, you know, the idea of um, (laughs) being crazy. So how did you move from a position of resistance to it to one, you know? in no mean that, that it works as a, a therapy, or as a, you know, kind
1: of a, a healing modality. Yes. Well, slowly, and, again, that's so much part of the ignorance of not giving people a baseline understanding of, of what their mental health is. I mean, even, again, you know, and I'm, I'm a member of Congress, I deal with health care issues and all this, but I didn't really know anything about even just the basics of mental health. I mean, what, what are the treatment options? What can you do? Um, you know? And the initial reaction, I think, if you're not well-trained in this, is don't worry about it. Well, you know, what are you anxious about? What are you worried about? And people would want to know that. Like, okay, you know, you named these four or five things. Ah, oh, it's okay. But that's not the way it works. So, you know, I was resistant to it initially because I didn't understand it. And I will also say that the psychiatrists and psychologists that I met with did a very poor job of explaining it. And this is one of the things that, that I identify as a problem in our healthcare profession. Our healthcare professionals are highly trained, and they know a lot. I mean, it's really complicated trying to figure out how the human body and the human mind work and interact and all of that. But their communication skills leave a lot to be desired because they're not, they're not trained in that. They're not trained to listen carefully to patients or to communicate clearly with them. So I didn't understand what it meant. I mean, I met with, back in 2005, when when my anxiety first hit me, I met with a psychiatrist. He was trying to talk to me about my childhood, and my adoption, and, you know, what was going on with, you know, my, the family I grew up in and the problems I had and all of this. And I was like, this is interesting. I mean, it's interesting. What, what's that got to do with the fact that I got anxiety going on now? And he didn't do a good job of explaining it. So... And I apologize for this, but this is, I'll try to abbreviate this answer.
2: But here are Number three
1: one. big things that, that I think mm-hmm. everybody needs to know about mental health. Number one, and this is what nobody told me until finally my last psychologist who I, I stuck it out and did three and a half years worth of psychotherapy with. Number one, baseline mental health, you have to have a feeling of your own self-worth okay, you have to believe that you are worthy as a human being, and a lot of people don't, number one, and number two, people like me misunderstand what that means. When my psychologist first tried to explain that to me, that he was sort of looking at this very complicated questionnaire that I filled out for him, and the first thing he said to me was, you don't think you have a right to exist, which I didn't understand what that meant and thought he was insane. But when they're talking about a sense of your own self-worth, they're not talking about analyzing your life from a pro-con perspective. Like, well, oh, you know, I'm good at my job or, you know, I, you know, <laughs> I do well on trivia tests or I'm a good husband or I'm a good father or I'm a good friend or here's the positive things I've done in my life and here's the negative things and you add it all up and you go, yeah, I guess I'm okay. Now, the idea of inherent self-worth is that you are worthy as a human being because you exist, period. It is not something that is in question on a day-in and day-out basis. You are, to use more of the Buddhist way of looking at it, worthy of love. And if you doubt that, if you don't believe that, if you don't have that fundamental healthy narcissism, as they refer to it, then you're going to be struggling because every day you're trying to prove it. Every day, if you, if you do something wrong, if you fail at something, if, if someone judges you poorly, you're going to see it as an existential threat to your basic worth as a human being. So number one, psychotherapy can really help you work to establish that basic sense of self-worth and to explain what it means. Number two is what psychotherapy really does, and this is the the sentence that best sums it up for me, actually, I think it's more than one sentence, but the purpose of psychotherapy is not to correct the past. It is to help the patient understand his history and to grieve for what he has lost. That is what psychotherapy is about. And what we don't appreciate is things that have happened in our lives could be from your childhood. It could be happening right now. Maybe you're in a job that you hate, but you've been kidding yourself because you know you can't leave it because you need the money, so you're, you're burying how you really feel about it. Maybe you're in a, in a relationship like that, and you're not being honest about it. Psychotherapy pulls that out and has you talk about it so that you can adequately deal with it instead of burying it. Trauma is a huge part of this. If, if people have undergone specific traumas when they were you know, younger at any point in their life, think about it. There's so much research now being done, and psychotherapy is one way to do it. There are some medications and also something called EMDR therapy that helps you bring out that trauma and really relive it and actually experience it so that you can properly process it and deal with it. Those unknown things going on that you've buried and repressed, they can be a real problem. So you have to be honest with yourself. You know, why or what is bothering you about your life, not just now, but your whole life. And then the third thing is to teach your mind how to deal with the stresses of everyday life. That is part of it. You know, I mentioned how, you know, you could have stress, but stress isn't the same thing as anxiety. That's true, but stress can cross over into anxiety if you don't know how to properly process and that's the other big true thing that somebody said to me a long time ago. It's not the amount of stress you have in your life. It's how you process it, which seems just counterintuitive. I mean, when I first started having these problems, I was like, obviously I have to figure out some way to reduce the stress in my life. And you can think of your own life. Oh, I'm not, not doing great. Okay, I've taken on this responsibility and that responsibility. I need, I need to slow down. I need to stop doing all this stuff. And sometimes that can be part of it. But more often, the question is, you have things from that psychotherapy part that are making it harder for you to process stresses that you ought to be able to process. You can train your mind, this is cognitive behavioral therapy, you can train your mind to react differently to the things that go on around you.
2: The initial
1: emotion that you have, you don't have to chase it. And this is the big thing I learned from meditation. Meditation isn't about getting your mind to completely go blank and not think about anything. It's about not chasing after every thought that comes into your head. The language they use is notice the thought and let it go. And you really can train your mind to not have as emotional reaction to the things going on around you. So, look, at the end of the day, that, that's my elevator speech, well, long elevator ride, but <laughs> number one, you got to have a sense of self-worth. Number two, be honest with yourself about your history. And number three, know that you can, in fact, train your mind to react more calmly to the world around you. Those are the three basics of of mental health that I think everybody should be aware of. Yeah. And and so
0: much of that is, you know, within your control, you know. I mean, it's, you know, it's just, um, yeah, so, you know, once you become aware of uh of, of the actions or, or aware of one's response to, you know, conditions, then, then you can, you know, work to train yourself to have a, a different response. Um now with you mentioned you know, the therapist, the psychotherapist, psychiatrist. Um in, in your book, you know, you um either clicked or didn't necessarily with them. And you know, so okay. can you talk a little bit about that importance? Because I you know um, I think some people, you know, may find themselves, you know, referred to a a particular person and then just, you know, stick with them through thick and thin, whether or not it, it's working.
1: Yeah. No, I, I really think that, you know, look, first of all, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists, any type of doctor you're going to go see, they're like any other group of humans. Some of them are good at their job and some of them are not. All right? It's you know, you gotta figure out is, is this does this person know what they're doing? And then second of all, are they helping me? Um, you know, do we have a good communication level? I think there is that tendency, and I certainly have this tendency, it's like, gosh, I a couple that were just like I don't but I was like, they know more than I do. I mean, I'm the one with the problem. They're mm-hmm. the other ones are supposed to solve it. Maybe I'm just not seeing something here. All right. I think I would advise patients to be more discerning in that regard. You have to have a good relationship, particularly on the mental health side, but even on the physical health side. When I was trying to figure out, you know, why my hips hurt, why my back hurt, why my knee hurt, you know, some of the doctors I worked with were were much easier to communicate than others, and you have to find that. I do want to go back, sorry, to my point about um, how you can train your mind, because I don't think I made that clear, and I have a story I like to tell about this. Things can hit you, and you can perceive them in a certain way, even though it's incorrect because of the moment you're in. And I like to tell people about my 1996 campaign. First time I ran for Congress in the weekend before the election, and it was a tight race. Some millions of dollars spent on both sides. You know, I was running in against an incumbent. And I was got doorbelling the weekend before the election, and somebody had gone through and leafleted the neighborhood for my opponent right before I got there. Every doorstep I walked up to had this brochure (laughs) basically talking about how terrible I was. And literally, as I was walking, I it just hit me so emotionally. I was I became convinced that everybody was reading this, everybody was believing it, and it was going to decide the election that I was going to lose, and that doesn't make any sense. I mean, we're talking about, you know, maybe a 100 brochures in an election where over 200,000 people were going to vote, in an election where three or $4 million had been spent. But in my mind, I believed it like I, like, like I would have believed that a truck that was about to hit me was going to hit me, okay? So that's where you can take your mind and go, okay, let's take a step back here for a second. Well, what's really going on here? Um, your mind can, in fact, take you down the illogical, anxious paths. And that's where you have to train it to be able to go, okay, no, I'm not just going to feel it. And that's what – it's not, you know, it's not like it's not real. It's real, all right? But you have to learn how to better process
0: it. Yeah, yeah. And,
1: and you know, the the
0: idea of, you know, going down rapid holes of what could possibly happen in and, and the fact that so many of the things that we think, you know, might don't end up happening, you know. And so it's really um, a whole lot of energy expended on, you know, something that, you know, that doesn't exist, um, you know, or wouldn't eventually exist. So that's um, – now, um, we're actually, we're about halfway through the so, show. Um, b- before we do, um, w- one of the um, – the, the ideas of the, um, you know, kind of choosing one's, you know, provider. Um, when it comes time to, um, you know, kind of using one's uh, insurance, like in, in your book there was one particular psychiatrist I went to who, who didn't accept insurance. insurance. You know, and you know there are a lot of folks out there who who don't have that that uh, the option of insurance or or, or aren't in, you know covered by insurance. So when it comes time to um, with these prof- with professionals who kind of don't want to deal with the system, um, what what is there anything that that can in your mind that can be um, done to um, maybe, you know, combat that or, or, or offset the, the, the challenges of, you know, insurance versus no insurance?
1: Yes. I think the only thing that really can be done about it is a big national policy, and that is the central problem with our health care system. You know, we, as is well documented, are the only, you know, industrialized nation in the world um, that doesn't have a universal access to health care system. Maybe you don't. Uh, Maybe the provider's covered. Maybe they aren't, Um, as opposed to, you know, I guess not the only kind that doesn't have the universal access uh, to healthcare uh, system either. But in places like Canada, Great Britain, throughout Europe, Japan, elsewhere, you know, if you're in the country, you have insurance and you're covered, and these are the providers, all right? Now, a lot of those countries also have separate private insurance for some, but there is that baseline level of pay, it is available. And it's not available in the US. It's it's a roll of the dice. It's a roll of the dice A, whether or not you're insured. Now the Affordable Care Act helped a little bit with that by expanding the number of people who are insured. But there's still a lot of people who, you know, you move from one job to the next, you don't have insurance. Or, second, even if you do, maybe the provider in question doesn't take your insurance, or so maybe they don't take any insurance whatsoever. So, universal access to healthcare is one of the best things that we can do about it. The other thing that we could do about it um, is have a better sort of set of standard practices. This is particularly a problem in the mental health field. You know, I walk through those three sort of baselines of healthcare of mental health. Um, and, you know, I have a psychiatrist, psychologist that doesn't necessarily buy into that. They do their own thing. What is the best practices? What does work? That's really not well regulated in this country. And if you are a psychiatrist or psychologist, you can hang out your shingle. Don't take insurance. You're certainly regulated. You have to meet certain board requirements. But in terms of what, you, um, what type of care you provide, that's kind of up to you. And there's not really much effort to do the research and say, okay, well, what's working? What makes the most sense? And then you could, again, have a more standardized practice of care, which would help a patient provider that's going to treat them um, in the way that they should be treated.
0: Yeah, great. Well, we're going to take a, a quick break here, Adam, and, and then when we return, I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, the the challenges that our health system kind of creates when it comes to uh, health care. So everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back up at this very brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link, that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, nature photography, calendars, and 5x7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeart Radio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn and you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc., and we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, ByteRadio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone, thank you for staying with us. Again, today, my special guest is Congressman Adam Smith, and we're talking about his new memoir, Lost and Broken, My Journey Back from Chronic Pain and Crippling Anxiety. And again, you can find out more about Congressman Smith by visiting his government page, which is adamsmith.house.gov. And his book is available as a paperback, Kindle, and uh, Audible uh, uh, on Amazon.com. So definitely go check it out. Okay, with that, we're back, Adam. Hello. Do we have you there, Adam?
1: I'm here. Went for okay. 2nd I'm back. <laughs> That's okay, great.
0: Um, so regarding, you know, the healthcare, you know, you talked about um you know the idea of, of having maybe a of, of base kind of, of services and, and you know, health care available to, to everyone. Um a couple of the items that you talked about in your book about the um some of the, the challenges of our of our health care system. Um one of them was um the economic incentives, um, you know, to push healthcare providers away from kind of the in-depth critical thinking kind of approach that you talked about. So um, is there um, – with, with those kind of incentives, with economic incentives, I mean, money seems to be a motivator, period, you know, when it comes yeah. to um, – you know, to providers, to insurance, and, and to the people who have to pay for it. So, um, yeah. is is there any um, ideas on on how you know those kinds of incentives can shift, maybe to to make for a, a more a wider um, availability?
1: Yeah, I mean the thing to keep in mind about this: there's there's two huge problems with our healthcare system right up front, and the most stark way to put it is healthcare providers don't get paid to make you better. They don't. Okay? Which seems odd since that's the entire purpose of this. But they don't. Um, They get paid to see you and talk to you. They get paid to operate on you. They get paid to provide you drugs or do tests and various other things. But whether or not those things work doesn't change how much they get compensated. In fact, there are incentives in there to do things that may not make you better. Um, You know, ordering MRIs, ordering x-rays, you know, putting people on on certain medications, or joint replacement is a huge one. Um, You know, it's fairly well compensated, but is it necessary? So those economic incentives just aren't, aren't there in a logical way. So, number one, to keep that in mind. It, you know, whether or not you get better has nothing to do with how a healthcare provider is compensated. And that's a little bit of a problem. Second is the whole idea that most of the time when you're seeing a healthcare provider, you don't have your normal buyer seller relationship. I always like to quote my namesake here, Adam Smith, the so called father of capitalism. <laughs> you know, who, who set up, you know, the market was you get a buyer and seller. And so you have a level playing field. And, you know, if all of these things are present, the incentives are there to to make sure that you get the best deal. Now, there's all kinds of problems with that um, just in general. But when it comes to health care, a big one. You don't just have a buyer and a seller. Um, you have a payer, the provider of the service, the healthcare provider, provider. Um, they're getting paid. The person getting the service wants the service, but it's usually an insurer who's paying the bill, not the person who's getting the service. And that creates all kinds of perverse incentives. Now, what we can do about this, and there are some ideas out there, um, the poorly named concierge medicine, which is where you pay a flat fee um, to have access to a primary care physician, Um, Because another big problem here is doctors don't get paid anymore, uh, depending on how long they see you. They get paid the same amount if they see you for two minutes and if they see you for two hours. Well, some of these problems, you know, require more than five or ten minutes to talk about. And there's not an incentive there. But you could set up the incentives to better compensate primary care instead of our system, which currently compensates specialty care. You know, I'm quite certain that I had at least one surgery that I didn't need, and maybe three. Uh, But that's where the incentives lie. And the other problem with this system, because they don't get paid to see you for any length of time, the drugs are such an easy answer. You know, here, take this pill, uh, you know, and it'll fix you we way over-medicate on, on both health care and on pain, in my opinion, as opposed to getting to the actual root causes of the problem. Yeah.
0: That, that, I mean, quite often, medication is just a Band-Aid, you know, that kind of, you know, doesn't get to the to the root of the issue. And, and you know, pharma, you know, we... It's wonderful with a lot of the, you know, the the breakthroughs that have been made and and a lot of the, you know, wonderful types of um, drugs that can, you know, help. But, you know, there is that. I mean, you know, it's just amazing to me how medicated we are. You know, I mean, to me, it it seems that, you know, we're we're a, a nation that's just trying to um Benumbed, you know, into yeah, well, you know, into our daily
1: lives. Yeah, and on the mental health side, it's really important to to explain this because what is depression and anxiety? What, what, what's being triggered? There are certain chemicals in your brain, and I'm not familiar with all of them, but certainly dopamine and serotonin contribute to it. And you know, there is a, a very direct chemical trigger that hits. You know, your, your fight or flight mechanism kicks in and there's a certain chemical in your brain that gets amped up. So a lot of times what, what, what the, the prescription drug people are pushing is the idea that, well, your serotonin or your dopamine, they're just set at a different level than everybody else, so we're gonna give you this drug and it's gonna fix it. Um, well a couple things that I hope people understand about that is first of all, even if you have slightly different, you know, um, levels of serotonin and dopamine, the average person, you can still train your brain how to react in a way that doesn't give in to that. I mean, you can make your brain better in the same way that you can make your body better. You know, if you want to build up your cardio, you're going to go out and run or bike or swim or whatever, and if you do that, you will have greater lung capacity. Now, you know, I mean, Lance Armstrong is on the extreme end one side you know, in terms of having incredible lung capacity, that as he trained, he got even better than that. Maybe other people are on the other end, and if they train, they'll get better, but not that much. But you're always going to get better, and the same is true with your brain, okay? Even if you're in one of those categories that puts you in a more vulnerable position, there are things you can do to make your brain better. Pharmaceuticals just hide it, and also they're incredibly important in terms of, you know, exactly what they're doing to your dopamine or your serotonin level. And lastly, most of them build up a tolerance. So what will help you for a week or maybe even a month,
2: then it won't help
1: you as much. And then you got to take more. And side effects, and eventually it just doesn't help you at all. That's what I discovered with clonazepam, which is a pretty amazing anti-anxiety medication in the short term. Alright, but you build up tolerance and it buries the basic issue that you should be trying to get at. So yes, one of the, the great bad side effects of our healthcare system is the over-reliance on medication. And a big part of the reason for the over-reliance on medication is because our system is set up so that the quick, easy fix is what the provider's looking for, it's what the patient is looking for, and it's damn sure what the pharmaceutical company is trying to sell you on on I an mean, almost 24-7 basis.
0: Yeah, it is, um one of, one of my, I guess it's a pet peeve, is just the, you know, the number, the amount of advertising we see on television for drugs. For, I mean, you know, it's, you know, any particular commercial break in, in, uh, in programming, you know, probably 50% are oh, going to yeah. be some kind of drug, you
2: mm-hmm. know.
0: And and the, the, they go through the side effects, you know, and, of course, one of the side effects is death, you know. So it's like, um,
2: you know, to me. <laughs> yeah, an, yeah. Sorry yeah, to
1: interrupt. And, 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 so. I don't know if you remember, but, but. when um, – They did this interview with Meghan and Harry on Oprah, um, and it was broadcast back in Great Britain on U.S. television. So a lot of people in Great Britain wanted to see it, so they watched it. And they hadn't really seen American television that much. And there were so many drug advertisements that the people in Great Britain were like, are you guys okay over there? Because every (laughs) single advertisement is some some drug because they don't allow that type of advertisement in, in, in Great Britain. So, yes. It, it is definitely being pumped. And, and being pumped into our brains for a reason. There's a lot of money to be made.
0: Yeah, you know, and, and you know, the, what what kind of worries me, you know, is uh, the idea of, you know, it, it raises, um, you know, raises people, I guess, awareness, you know, but to the effect of, you know, now nah, I'm going to go into my doctor and ask for this, you know, which is what the – the goal is of, of pharma, you know, is to you know, sell your drugs. But um but to me it it's just um I'm amazed at the amount of and and wasn't there a time when we did not have that here in the US?
1: Yeah, I forget exactly when it was, but it's been a while now. But it used to it used to not be legal to advertise prescription medications. Um, and that was changed for for public advertising. Up and then and you've seen the explosion in use. And look, I I want to be clear here. As, as you said in the intro to this, there are some people who benefit enormously from from medications and having had access there. But as I said, I stand by the statement: we way overutilize medication in this country. And the healthcare profession and others need to seriously think about that. Um, and particularly when it comes to mental health. Um, whether you're talking about antidepressants, SSRIs like Prozac and Zoloft or, or anti-anxiety medication, um, anti various different medications that are far more of a role of the dice, we'll realize. And also they do bury the underlying problem, which brings me back to the big theme that I want to have every time I talk about my book is you can get better. There are treatments that work you go back to those three baseline things that I said. Understand your self-worth. Do the psychotherapy to really understand what you're feeling and be honest with yourself and do cognitive behavioral therapy so you can better teach your brain how to deal with the normal ups and downs of life. Those basic things don't require medication.
0: Yeah, yeah. So for people out there, listening, who are experiencing chronic pain or anxiety,
2: um, is
0: would would that be your your overreaching message? Your 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 message to them is is recognition and and hope that that things will be better.
1: Yes. Well, I wouldn't say hope. Um, I would say you you have to work at it. You absolutely do. Okay. But again, understand your own self worth and understand what that means. And if you don't have that sense of self-worth, if you're constantly doubting your, your worth in the world, understand that you're not going to find your worth in the world by by getting better at something or whatever. You're going to have to go back in, into your history and understand, well, why don't I have that sense of self-worth?
2: What is happening
1: in my life or what has happened in my life that causes that? That's the psychotherapy that, that you need to do, and you have to be honest with yourself when you're going into that, and then, lastly, understand that your brain will trick you; it will make you overreact to things, and that you can train it to have a calmer approach to the ups and downs of life that are around you. Um, and 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 I don't want to mitigate this; it takes work. Like I said, maybe three and a half years, all right, um, <laughs> of psychotherapy. Um, you know, and the other point that I make in the book that's really important and one of the impediments to me embracing psychotherapy early on is I thought of trauma as being you know you were abused as a child or you had an alcoholic parent or an incredibly you know all this instability in your life and and that certainly happens a lot and if you have that type of trauma again you're really going to need to get a trained psychotherapist work through it experience it deal with it um, but it doesn't have to be that dramatic. My, my childhood was simply unstable. I was adopted as a starting point. Uh, the parents who adopted me were, okay, so like I said, my mother had had a history of depression. My father had anxiety. You know, I, I had an older brother who wound up having all kinds of problems starting from his early teenage years. You know, stole from a family, got arrested multiple times, was a huge source of instability. Um, And all of that just added up to an unstable childhood. And what I ultimately felt like was the failure of the family that I grew up in and my lack of an ability to process, okay, what was my role in that failure? How do I feel about it? So trauma can come from a lot of different things. But the final point I want to emphasize on this, you can get better. You can deal with that. I don't think it's a good idea to – I don't want people to go searching for the reason why they're unhappy just so that they can go, okay, I have a reason to be unhappy, so I'll just be unhappy. I want people to go searching Mm -hmm. for the source of their anxiety, for the source of their depression, so that they can live a more healthy and productive life, and I passionately believe that that's possible. Not easy. Not easy at all. Nothing I did in in getting better, would I categorize as easy – but it can be done, and if you do it, the payoffs are just unbelievable.
0: Well, you know, you mentioned three and a half years, you hmm. know, of, of the psychotherapy. But reading your book, I mean, it, you know, has been a lifelong kind of yeah. um, journey with with that. And so, um, and and also, you know, what I liked in your book is, is you recognized um, the ups and downs. You know, the, the you know the times when you know, what you were pursuing as far as a um a remedy uh, would work, you know, for a time. Or, or you know, sometimes there were, you know, it had to be a shift, you know, and providers. So that it's recognizing that, you know, it, it's really kind of a, an active um process that that, that right. one has to follow.
1: Yeah, and I should admit it, Nick. And I think, you know, it is, you're going to have, okay, the same thing is going to work for everybody. I mean, there's probably some people who would go to the psychologist to help me, and it wouldn't click. You're going to have to sort of work your way through it. But I think it's also an important point out. You know, I basically spent the first 48 years of my life trying to ignore this stuff, um, and then I spent, like, two years trying to drug it into submission, <laughs> all right, mm-hmm. um, before I finally mm-hmm. decided, before I was finally forced to deal with it. In fact, I remember having a conversation with a psychologist early on in 2013 who was talking about suppression, okay, that, you know, there's obviously issues going on in your life, either from your childhood or at some point that you're you're suppressing and, and they're coming out. And I was thinking, well, if I suppressed them for 48 years, couldn't I just – Suppress them for a number, another <laughs> 30 or so and call it good? Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> you know, can, can we try that? Uh, and the answer is, mm-hmm. well, no, you really can't because those issues come up. Yeah. You have to peel it back and deal with it. And that's really hard. That's why your brain is doing what it's doing to you. It's trying to distract you. It's trying to keep you from dealing with things that you find painful. And, and again, now sometimes that can be something profound, like you know, like I said, abuse of one kind or another, or you know, abandonment. A whole bunch of different things. There's a whole bunch of different things. I mean, I I was adopted, and I'll consider myself to have been abandoned in the sense that I had parents who who took me from you know. 10 days old and raised me, um, but there are things that around that, that in your brain that cause that. And one, one of the big problems for me is I was really unhappy with the way my family turned out. I, I also, in the book, my father died when I was 19. My mother died six years later, and I didn't, I didn't know I was adopted until after they had both passed away. So all this stuff happened, and I never had any chance to sort of deal with it and talk about it. So just said, screw it. It doesn't have anything to do with it. I'm doing fine. I don't to think about this, when, in fact, I had a whole hell of a lot of unresolved issues about how I felt about my family growing up and my role in it, that I had to think about and talk about and be honest about. It, it was enormously helpful once I did. Yeah. Well, one of my
0: favorite lines from your book was um, a quote that you said you loved um, from a Sue Grafton mystery novel um that thinking's hard work, which is why you don't see many people doing it. Yeah. No, I, Boy. I've used, I've used that a long time. Yeah, I, I that you no, know, that's going to make me feel a lot better with some of the things I see going on uh, around us. Well, Adam, I really thank you for your time. It's, um, I enjoyed your book. Um, I really appreciate your conversation. It's an important conversation we need to have, and and um, hopefully we're
1: going to continue on on the right track. Yeah, no, that's a great thing. I've had a number of people since I've written this book who have found out about it who have said, you know, the thing to me that I most want to get out of this, which is I was struggling didn't want to deal with it. Either didn't want to deal with it. Didn't think I was I, I could deal with that without without too much blowback, or didn't think it would make any difference. But having read your book to see that you know you can struggle, it's okay to talk about it, and there is help out there. That that that's what I hope is that anyone who's in that situation or anyone who knows anyone who's in that situation. Concludes. Um, you 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 can get help and you can get better and it is perfectly okay to talk about it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and so for people out there who feel lost or broken or know someone who feels has those feelings, that this is a really good book for them to um, to start thinking about um, working their way back to mental health. So thank you very much for your time, sir. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for the chance. You're very welcome. Again, everyone, today my special guest has been Congressman Adam Smith. he have been talking about his new memoir, Lost and Broken, by Journey Back from Chronic Pain and Crippling Anxiety. And, again, you can find it on Amazon in paperback, Kindle, and audio. Uh, and for more information about uh, Congressman Smith, you can visit his government page, which is adamsmith.house.gov everyone I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show and until we meet again thank you for tuning in you've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show remember our show is available as a free podcast from Spotify iHeartRadio, Radio TuneIn Apple Podcasts Blog Talk Radio Amazon Music and Audible to follow our show on any of those platforms visit Biteradio.me and select the one you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Me. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.